Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. San Francisco, I'm Marisa Lagos, and today for Mina Kim. A federal appeals court on Friday temporarily blocked a vaccine mandate for California prison workers, an order that had been opposed by Governor Gavin Newsom and the powerful prison officers union. Meanwhile, state health officials say they are closely monitoring the emerging Omicron variant. Coming up on Forum, we'll discuss the evolving politics of COVID in California, including one town's attempt to defy pandemic rules, plus redistricting headaches for lawmakers, housing density battles, and more. That's next after this. Welcome to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim. This variant is a cause for concern, not a cause for panic. We have the best vaccine in the world, <clears throat> the best medicines, the best scientists, and we're learning more every single day. That was President Joe Biden this morning on the new Omicron variant. He also says that the path forward would not be lockdowns, but vaccines. You have to get your vaccine. You have to get the shot. You have to get the get the booster if you're the sooner or later we're going to see cases of this new variant here in the United States. We'll have to face this new threat just as we face those that come before it. In this hour of forum, we're going to get the facts on Omicron and how California is responding. Then the latest in state politics with KQED's Katie Orr and Guy Marzarati, including battles over housing and what redistricting will mean for the balance of power. Joining us now are Katie Orr, politics and government reporter for KQED in Sacramento. Welcome, Katie. Hi, Marisa. And Guy Marzarati, reporter and producer for KQED's California Politics and Government Deaths. Good morning, Guy. Hey, Marisa. Hope you guys both had an awesome Thanksgiving. It's good to be back with you. Um, and of course, we are coming back to news about yet another variant, this Omicron, uh, which we're all figuring out how to say the Greek word, <laughs> right? For I mean, Guy, listening this morning to the president's remarks, uh, can you just uh, react to what you heard and, and maybe what differences it is from you know a year ago? 
when we had a different president in the White House dealing with some of these ongoing <laughs> chapters in this uh, pandemic. Right. Well, I think he kind of broke down his uh, reaction into three buckets. We heard one of them right at the top of the hour urging people to be concerned but not panic. Also using this kind of increased attention on the virus, right? It, over the last five months, Biden has been really occupied with other things other than the coronavirus, even though it hasn't gone away. I think he used uh, this, you know, resurgence, emergence of a, va- a new variant to, you know, renew his call to get vaccinated, get a booster shot. And then the third piece was laying out a contingency plan. Basically, you know, if he he was, you know, repeated that he felt confident that current vaccines would protect against this Omicron variant. But he said that he is already working with Pfizer and Moderna on a contingency uh, if the current vaccines don't work. It is just interesting to see Biden kind of put COVID kind of back on the front burner, right? He's been so focused on infrastructure and getting his social spending package uh, through Congress. This is an issue there where really the executive is in charge, right? You're, you're not deferring to uh, Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema on coronavirus response. And I think it's uh, maybe a refresher for Biden to take on an issue where congressional politics are not the driver. Absolutely. And Katie, I want to bring you in here. I mean, Newsom, Governor Gavin Newsom responded um, with a sort of similar message over the weekend saying that we're closely monitoring this new variant, we'll continue to be guided by data and science, and um, that we know the best way to protect yourself is to get vaccinated and get a booster. Uh, Is this what you would expect is that these two to kind of be on the same page? Yeah, absolutely. And I think they're both trying to, again, straddle the message of um, go out, get your booster. That's your best uh, protection. But do not panic. Because the truth is, there's a lot about this variant that we don't know yet. And uh, so for they really want people to remain calm, but do what they can um, about, you know, protecting themselves. Um, I think in reading the coverage of this, what one really interesting political element that's coming up internationally is we're seeing more and more countries put in travel bans um, Mm -hmm. from South Africa, you know, and uh, people in in that part of the world, uh, specifically the country of South Africa are saying, wait a second, you all didn't help us get the vaccines we needed to make sure that these, you know, we can get this under control so we don't see new variants. Now you're effectively shutting us off uh, and will cripple our economies. Um, there, This is not right. And uh, we saw Joe Biden come out and say, you know, the U.S. has done uh, a lot of work to get vaccines to these countries, but it, it really is shocking. You know, you're seeing this disparity between richer countries like the United States and those countries in Europe that have the vaccine and are more able to control the spread of these variants and, and countries that don't have as much access and being punished for it. Right. And, seems- and I want to uh, actually bring in, we have Meg Terrell here. She is senior health and science reporter for CNBC. Meg, welcome to Forum. Hi, great to be here. Thanks for joining us. And yeah, we want to level set a little bit here. So it feels like I think a lot of people are coming back to work after Thanksgiving holiday, maybe catching up on the news. Um, And of course, this is dominating headlines. Can you just kind of level set with us? Like, what do we know about this variant? How concerned should folks be? Yeah, this really came out over Thanksgiving, and it was not the the Black Friday I think a lot of people were hoping to have on Friday. Um, what's concerning about this variant to scientists is the number of mutations that it has, particularly on the spike protein. And that's the part of the virus that enables it to infect cells. It's the part of the virus that our vaccines target. And so there's concern about the um, 
quickness of the spread in South Africa, a suggestion perhaps that it can outcompete the Delta variant, which is so contagious, that's not known yet. There's also concern about its ability to reinfect people who have already been infected with other variants or potentially to dent the protection of our vaccines or some of our medicines. But all of that is a giant question mark right now. We just don't know the answers to those questions. Some of them we should learn within a couple weeks, the initial lab data on the vaccines, for example. Some of it will take a little bit longer, like whether this causes more severe disease or less severe disease. So we'll be learning about this over the next month or two. Um, as of right now, we haven't identified any Omicron cases in the U.S., although it's expected it probably is here. Um, and the recommendation is to get vaccinated. That'll be the best protection. And even if there is some dent, Dr. Fauci has been saying the vaccine should still protect against severe disease to some degree. Yeah, he really dug in on that today. I mean, you heard Katie right before we brought you in talking about these travel bans. I mean, we've seen places like Australia sort of institute even more sweeping um, you know, lockdowns, essentially. What what can we what do we know about why? politicians are choosing to institute these and whether they work. I mean, you said it hasn't been detected here, but it seems like in previous variants, you know, there's a lot we didn't know until weeks, you know, weeks in, essentially. Yeah, the the perspective from the public health world seems to be these sorts of flight restrictions can maybe slow down entry by a week or two. And the difference between this variant and previous ones is how early we've found out about it because of the fantastic work from the researchers in South Africa and Botswana. Um, we know about this variant a lot sooner than we've you know, known very much about other variants. So there is some thought that these restrictions could slow things down a little bit, but there's also a huge concern about the essential punishment of South Africa and the countries around it for raising their hand and raising the flag about this so quickly uh, that now we're saying, okay, we're going to, you know, sort of punish you economically because you did this. The president, you know, said that wasn't what he thought the outcome was going to be or that other countries would be slow to raise their hands. But I think a lot of people are worried that that will be the outcome. Well, and the other thing we're hearing from places like these countries in Africa is that the sort of wealthier nations haven't lived up to their global obligations. And the president has been making a pretty strong case that, that the United States has, that we've shipped, you know, hundreds of millions of doses more than any other country. Um, and he's calling on other wealthy nations to step up. Is that characterization fair? I mean, is is the U.S. doing as much as it could to, to stem this type of, uh, you know, just raging through countries that don't have the access to vaccines that we do? I think there are certainly folks who believe that there could be more done by the United States and by other wealthy countries. One big issue that we're hearing about is the the sort of last mile delivery of vaccines into these countries. Um, the ability to have the cold chain storage, you know, the Pfizer vaccine has to be kept very cold. Um, the syringes and the gloves and everything that you need to be able to give vaccines. Um, we heard from the World Health Organization that often they'll get donations, um, but they won't come with those items, the donated um, doses may be close to their expiration dates and they don't have the ability to plan around them and they're, they won't be given much notice before getting these donations. And so it's really difficult for countries and health systems to be able to plan for vaccination campaigns when there's so much uncertainty about their supply, both of vaccines and of these materials. There's also questions about hesitancy in these countries, mm -hmm. just as we have here in the United States. Right. So a lot of issues with being able to deliver these vaccines in addition to just the doses 
getting donated. Right. But as we're seeing, this is a global pandemic and a global economy. And it's not as if what happens in one nation only affects the people there. Um, so I, I want to ask you, I mean, a few minutes left with you before I know you have to run. But uh, Meg, do you think Americans should be changing their plans for the coming weeks and months? I mean, we just had Thanksgiving. We know that cases have gone up in the U.S. in recent weeks. Uh, we also know that there's a lot of availability to vaccines and even some of the therapeutics that are being developed. What, From where you sit, like, what what's the kind of advice you, you would give? Well, you know, even before we have any detected cases of Omicron, in some parts of the country, in many parts of the country, it's not a great situation for COVID right now. We have high transmission in, in most of the country. Uh, and so according to the CDC guidance, we should be wearing masks indoors in areas of high or substantial transmission. And the president talked about that again today, even though I think Washington, D.C. is a place that maybe doesn't have that right. <laughs> mask requirement in place. Um, and so... I think a lot of us have just wanted to feel like this is over. We're vaccinated. We can move on. Um, and, you know, hospitalizations are still rising in some places. Hospitals are getting filled up. And so as we head into the colder months and we see these numbers tick higher, getting vaccinated, getting boosted if appropriate, wearing masks indoors or in crowded places probably makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And what about, I mean, do we know anything about how quickly uh, parents are choosing to vaccinate their kids and just like broadly, how much that could impact the sort of herd immunity in a place like the United States? Yeah, it's certainly hoped that that will make a big difference. The more people who have protection, you know, the the less the virus will be able to spread, uh, hopefully. Um, there, We saw initially, you know, about 10% of kids get vaccinated within the first two weeks of the vaccine being available down to age five. That's certainly going to be really different in different parts of the country, probably tracking with adult vaccination rates to right. some extent. Um, but that should make a big difference. The one other thing I'll just mention that that's really important is these antiviral drugs from Pfizer and Merck. They are coming along and we've been hearing from the companies that they're not expected to be affected by this Omicron variant. Oh, wow. Um, and so the Pfizer drug in particular has shown 89% efficacy in reducing the risk of severe disease or death if you take it within the first three days of symptoms with COVID. Um, so that could be a real important tool here um, as it gets through the FDA. Absolutely. That was Meg Terrell. She's senior health and science reporter for CNBC. Meg, thanks so much for making some time for Forum. Oh, thank you. After the break, we'll keep talking with Katie Orr and Guy Marzarati on KQED's politics team about both the reaction here in California to what's happening with COVID-19 and a smattering of other political stories. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos, and we are talking California politics with Katie Orr. She's politics and government reporter in Sacramento for KQED. Hi again, Katie. Marisa. <laughs> and Guy Marzarati is also here with us, reporter and producer for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. We just got off with Meg Terrell. She's senior health and science reporter for CNBC. Um, and so, you know, we heard Meg sort of laying out why there's concern, but also tempering that with what we don't know and, and the, the vaccines and therapies available. Um, I, I mean, we mentioned that Newsom is sort of using this guy as a, as a way to encourage more vaccines. Um, but we're also seeing some pushback, continued pushback, I would say, from our rural areas of the state. Uh, a story broke over the holiday about Oroville actually voting to try to make themselves a constitutional republic Tell us why they're doing this and if it can go anywhere. Well, this, I think, is more of a ceremonial title than anything that would exempt them from from state requirements. Um, But I think it is, one, a flip on the sanctuary title that we've seen a lot of California cities take a play on the sanctuary uh, state and city laws uh, protecting uh, immigrants in the state. And we've heard sanctuary cities for businesses, sanctuary cities for, you know, coronavirus uh, restrictions. I think this is another example of the real division in the state, particularly the opposition in northern counties to a lot of these uh, restrictions put forward by Governor Newsom. It's no coincidence that many of these same counties were, you know, the hotbed of signature gathering in the recall election and some of the counties with the highest support for the recall uh, in September. But I don't think this you know, de- designating yourself in this way actually yeah, uh, I think, makes I think any difference. One of the the articles we read basically had a law professor saying that this doesn't mean anything. But Katie, clearly it's symbolic. I mean, it's also gotten a lot of national attention, especially from conservative media. We saw the vice mayor of Oroville on Fox News. I mean, how do you expect the Newsom administration to react to this? Because it seems to me in the past that Newsom's tried not to kind of engage in tit for tat, let's say, over these sort of political moves at the local level. Yeah, and I would be surprised if he spent much, if any time on it, uh, on this story as well. As Guy said, this is part of an ongoing kind of disconnect between rural uh, California, particularly northern rural California, and um, more metropolitan areas of the state. Um, I've reported on this for several years. And it really is just the issues up there are different than some of the issues that we think about down here. You know, they have issues with like forest management, um, industry, there's a lot of pushback on environmental regulations up there, because they feel like they impede uh, ranching and, 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 and things like that. And so we've long seen a push from uh, communities in Northern California to kind of carve out 
essentially carve out their own state. I mean, the state of Jefferson right. is something we've long <laughs> reported on, uh, has been around, that movement has been around since the 50s, uh, I believe. And so it's, this is not anything new. Certainly, this will grab headlines, because as we said, you know, they've declared themselves a whatever, they're independent, you know, an independent government. Um, but as Guy said, this is not going to have any legal effect on you know, their who actually governs them. And I don't think it's something that we'll see Newsom make a big deal out of just because it's something that has been around for a while. Right. We are talking about COVID response in California. We're also going to pivot in a little bit to other political issues in California, like redistricting. We'd love to bring our listeners in. Do you have thoughts about how the state or local government should respond to the Omicron variant or in general? How are you responding to this new news just ahead of the holidays? You can call us at 866-733-6786. That's 866 You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We are at KQED Forum. You can also email questions to forum at kqed.org. And if you have any just other political questions, you got most of the political team here. So we're happy to to field whatever you got today. Um, Robert writes in, consider the House passed by large margins a $768 billion defense budget ostensibly to keep Americans secure in our daily lives. Yet we accept tens of millions of our neighbors keeping us insecure by their refusal to get vaccinated or even wear masks. We have strange priorities and definitions in this country as to what makes us safe and secure. Um, I'm just going to let that stand, I think. <laughs> um, I mean, Guy, we just saw Newsom come out of a recall attempt that ended up being at least he tried to make it really a referendum on COVID response in California. Uh, he handily defeated that, did not really seem to move a lot of folks you know, against him that had voted for him in 2018. Next year's an election year. I mean, do you think that the politics of this is going to continue to 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 I don't know, weigh on the governor or will it help him? I think in California, he's proven it to be a rally the base issue for Democrats. I think he these, you know, restrictions or mandates for vaccines, whether it's in schools, businesses, he turned that issue into the closing argument of the recall election very successfully. And I don't think there's any reason why that wouldn't continue into 2022, right? I think you're going to see a lot of these uh, restrictions or, or mandates for vaccines go into effect earlier in the year. We can talk about the prison guard. Yeah, I was just about to pivot to that. Yeah. Mandate that, that actually Newsom has opposed, hasn't offered a lot of explanation why there's potentially staffing issues. But I think those, you know, could likely uh, start to surface at the beginning of the year and kind of renew this argument over who needs to be vaccinated and what's the state's role in making that happen. Absolutely. And we have a caller on this just before I I bring him in. I want to set the stage here. We saw a federal appeals court just last week temporarily blocking an order mandating prison workers get vaccinated or have a religious or medical exemption. This was a Ninth uh, Circuit Court of Appeals panel, um, and it essentially uh, set a December 13 deadline for opening briefs, but delayed the enforcement of this mandate until sometime in March while this appeal is working its way through the process. I want to bring in Damien from Santa Rosa. Damien, you're on forum. Uh, Thanks so much for taking my call. Yeah, um, even in the early outbreak of this, when the the, uh, virus was running through San Quentin, they continued to operate that facility while people were getting sick, and that's a, a transfer station. So all incoming inmates go through one of two prisons, and in the north it's, it's San Quentin, and then they're shipped out from there to the rest of the prison. So not only does it seem ridiculous for prison staff to not be required to be vaccinated as state employees in a congregant setting where, where people are forced to be crowded together and where they still haven't 
abided by the federal mandates to reduce their population, um, they're still letting these guys program and and sending them off all around the state to various other prisons where they're not segregated and where they're 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 allowed to pass this virus and and people are dying and it just seems that the Newsom administration has cowardly capitulated to a, a group of people that are the most essential workers, but that are also uh, pushing a, a, a virus in an area where it's very hard to control. So um, All right. Thank well, you, Damian. just wondering on the opinions of that. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate your calling in. And I mean, Damian makes a great point, Katie, or this is serious. We saw 75 percent of San Quentin prisoners get COVID-19 in 2020. 28 prisoners died, one staff member. I mean, it seems in court filings, Katie, like the argument by the state, including the Newsom administration, is that they're worried about being able to actually operate these prisons if, if folks leave in, in droves? Is that how do you square that with the, the sort of demands by the governor that most other sectors get vaccinated? Well, I think it is hard to square. And I think it has a lot of people, you know, scratching their heads because uh, as as the caller mentioned, these uh, these prison employees are working in in close quarters uh, with a lot of inmates. The CDCR, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, had said that more than 50,000 state prisoners uh, had had a confirmed case of COVID and that at least 240 had died from the disease. So this is not something that is theoretical in California's prisons. This is you know, affecting the, the men and women who live there and the men and women who work there. Um, and as we've seen, Newsom has not been shy about making uh, vaccine mandates for other in people in other parts of the uh, economy. Teachers, for instance, are going to have to be uh, vaccinated when uh, the FDA gives full approval um, to those to those shots. Um, no testing. They have to be vaccinated or they can't work. And uh, it's it's interesting <laughs> that he would give CDCR such a pass uh, on this. I mean, I suppose people might leave, but when push comes to shove, People also need their jobs. Yeah. So it, it seems he is taking uh, definitely a more hands-off approach here than he is uh, in regards to other sectors of the economy. Yeah, although, I mean, Guy, it does seem like there are some a lot of prison officers who are eligible for retirements. And I just wonder, I mean, if you think... I mean, to me, this sort of poses the, the challenges of... A, a system like this, right? Where to some extent, I mean, we've seen, for example, police departments have some similar debates, but ultimately a lot of those officers seem to have gotten vaccinated. It's much smaller margins. Um, you also just have a different responsibility when you're operating an incarceration facility, right? Right. And I think at the very least, we sh- could expect Newsom to, to lay out that case, right? What What are the staffing right. considerations that make it impossible to carry out this mandate? I think it was originally scheduled for to go into effect in January you know, under current circumstances, why why couldn't that be the case? It seems like they're going to try to accelerate this appeal and, and hear arguments as soon as next month. Um, but I think we should, you know, we should expect Newsom to at least make the case for why this can't happen sooner. All right. We'll try to ask him about that. We're talking politics in California with Katie Orr and Guy Marzarati of our politics team. Um, and let's move on to a new topic, Guy, redistricting. This is the every 10 year process of uh, drawing political lines for state assembly, Senate and national congressional districts. Um 
Where are we at in this process? So we're getting down to the wire in California. The you know final map is due December 27th. Uh, and so the commission is pretty much going through the final changes to that. They've spent the last couple weeks hearing feedback on their draft maps uh, and are now tomorrow going to start the process of once again redrawing lines, adjusting districts uh, in the, in the hopes of getting this done by the end of the month. And it's really, you know, gotten down to hearing uh, the same kind of considerations they have been from communities across the state. But also, I think now the political uh, outcomes are really crystallizing and we're really starting to see which representatives might be in more difficult positions. And I've noticed in the last week or so, it's become a lot harder to differentiate in the public comment that the commission is getting. What are the political considerations when someone is calling in from a specific community and they're saying, I don't want to be grouped in this way? Is it because they like are the, they are they, they work for them? Yeah, yeah, are they calling from their congress member's office, basically? Um, and it's a lot because hard. some representatives have encouraged folks to do that. Absolutely. Right? We've seen I mean, in the case of, uh, you know, Mike Garcia, Republican congressman in nor- north of L.A., uh, who won a really close election in 2020. He's basically, you know, took to Twitter and said, this commission is trying to remove me from the House. They're trying to draw me out based on on the lines. He's accusing them of, you know, by removing Simi Valley potentially from his district. They're trying to get him out of Congress. And so you've heard a lot of callers in the last week call in and say, you know, I'm here. First of all, if you call in and say I'm in the 25th congressional district, that's a cue that. Yeah, you're you, like the fact that some, you know the number to begin right. with. So we've heard a lot of calls to that regard. Oh, but it's hard to differentiate. Some, you know, someone has called in and said, yeah, I live in Santa Clarita. And I, you know, share a lot of concerns over wildfires with residents in Simi Valley that don't exist in the San Fernando Valley. And I really mm-hmm. hope you take that into consideration. It's hard to differentiate. OK, what are the you know political machinations happening? I mean, I don't want to cast aspersions here, but just judging by my conversations with uh, friends and family over the holiday, I don't think most people know off the top of the head their district that right. they live in. Um, Katie, I mean, we should say that this is the second time that we have had this independent commission do this. This is something that, I mean, really good government advocates and, and, and really Democrats across the nation are calling for in other states, which is this idea that it should be an independent commission. Is it your sense that this this time feels any different than 10 years ago? Um, or, or I don't know. I, I feel like there's a lot of grousing among the political class for yeah, this time. I, mean, <laughs> I think it's a reflection of our, our po- political um, attitude on a larger scale right now. You know, we are so divided. California is going to lose a seat, and uh, which is, you know, unheard of <laughs> in this state, um, because other parts of the country are, are growing. And I, I, I think we are seeing also, again, that even though California tends to be more of a liberal, um, liberal state, we have a larger, by far a larger Democratic congressional delegation, we have all Democrats in state elected office, state elected offices here, you know, Democratic majorities in the Assembly and the Senate. Um, especially on the larger national level, it still speaks to this concern that Democrats have that it's not enough, right? That they can't afford to lose any districts in California. They can't afford to lose the seats in in progressive parts of the country because it is so closely divided. And so I think it seems now that the stakes are a bit higher. You know, we've we've had President Trump. We've seen um, what can happen that maybe perhaps people thought 
was not possible in the United States before. And so I think that's why we're seeing maybe increased um, apprehension around this process this time around. And, and I'll also add this. It's live. It's messy. It's happening mm. in these live stream meetings. Ten years ago, you know, maybe our browsers weren't working to the same effect where we could follow every step of this commission uh, happening in a live stream. If we went back to the old way where people were kind of doing it, state legislators were deciding this in smoke filled rooms. Yes, it would be a lot less messy. There would be a lot of uh, less debate out in public. I think this is a natural side effect of having this process kind of play out in the open. Well, and I mean, Guy, let's level set. Like, is our, you mentioned Mike Garcia's district, but there's also Democrat leading districts that are being folded into Republican. I mean, does it seem like one party or the other so far understanding these are drafts is coming up better than the other? You know, it's, I, it's hard to really decipher any clear advantage for either party. To your point, there's Demo- Democrats districts that are also being redrawn that could make it seem more difficult. And I think we have to keep in mind on the congressional side a couple things. You don't have to live in your district, right? That's a huge thing. I, there's a lot of discussion for someone like Josh Harder, who won a close seat in the Central Valley. He, I think, lives in Turlock, and, and that seat is being redrawn to take in more of the Sierra communities, become more conservative. He doesn't have to. He can go run in a district that's more towards Stockton if he wanted to. And also there's going to be retirements. We already saw Congresswoman Jackie Speier announce that she won't run in 2022. It's likely that we'd see other uh, representatives in the Democratic uh, Democratic representatives in California retire, possibly thinking they're not going to be a majority uh, in 2023. And so. If people leave leave a seat, then the mu- musical chairs start, and it's easier for folks to actually stay in office. They don't have to run in their same district. Quickly, God, though, the is there chairs any... ever stop? Oh, that... yeah, what, no. what, Katie? I said, does the musical chairs ever stop? No, no. <laughs> I mean, but guy, I mean, we do live in a state where Democrats outnumber Republicans two to one. This is a body that doesn't care about politics. Is there any fairness? And well, to Katie's point, this is the Katie's point, right? The... There's a lot of sense that the creation of a district like a, a commission like this in a place like California is just tying Democrats hand behind their back, right? Right. Katie uh, put the point perfectly. It's like this is occurring in a national context, right? This commission is drawing California's congressional lines while other states are doing it in a way that's really only advantaging one party, right? So it's not, there is the argument that on the congressional side, why is California putting its hand behind its back, letting this commission take over when you have other seats, you know, other states, Basically, the state legislature, the majority in many cases, Republican meeting and saying, how do we draw these maps in a way that makes sure that we gain seats or, or, or keep our seats? Yeah. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that's certainly a debate that's going to play out over the next 10 years because the courts have made it pretty clear they're not going to solve this. Congress is at a gridlock to solve this. So I don't this could end up being the status quo for a while. Absolutely. Uh, Katie, just a minute and a half or so before our break. But do you think that this is going to impact the session, the legislative session in Sacramento next year, are are a lot of our allies going to be looking over their shoulder at each other? Like, what, like, are you going to be running against me? <laughs> I think so. Um, I was reading up on this this morning, and there was the point made that only four senators are termed out before the 2022 election, and no assembly members are. So, I mean, so that means in a lot of these districts, there could be a lot of competition uh, for seats, even among you know, quote unquote, inc- incumbents whose districts may have changed but find themselves with the, the boundaries being a little bit you know, different and, and perhaps they have a challenger that they didn't expect because, the, you know, all's fair in love and politics, right? Absolutely. That was Katie Orr, politics and government reporter with KQED. We also have Guy Marzarati, reporter and producer for our California politics and government desk. Uh, we'll be back with more after a short break. We're going to talk about 
abortion rights, uh, housing, and maybe a little bit more about the future of one of Sacramento's most high-profile lawmakers. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos, in today for Mina Kim, and I am speaking with most of our politics team here, Guy Marzarati and Katie Orr. Um, and Katie, before we move on from legislative bingo, um, I did want to hit on one thing we've been hearing a lot of uh, scuttlebutt about, which is the potential future of Lorena Gonzalez. She's an assemblywoman from Southern California, San Diego, um, who has really built... I think a powerful reputation for herself in Sacramento. She is head of the assembly, uh, Appropriations Committee, which is one of the sort of gatekeepers of legislation and and spending in SAC. Um, And she's been getting some pressure for a potential outside job. Tell us about it. Yeah, um, I first broke news uh, back in October that um, the secretary of the San Diego and Imperial Counties Labor Council, uh, which uh, Lorena Gonzalez used to run when before she was elected to the assembly, had um, endorsed her to take over as the next uh, leader of the California Labor Federation, which is kind of an umbrella group uh, for labor groups in California and is extremely powerful. Uh, you know, this is if you're if you are a Democratic lawmaker, uh, it's safe to say you probably want to be on the good side of the California Labor Federation. <laughs> and this letter had um, urged her to take over for uh, the current president, um, Art Pulaski. Uh, we just saw earlier this week that, in fact, um, the executive committee of the Labor Federation, the executive council, I should say, um, has taken a non binding vote to recommend that she be the next chief officer after uh, Pulaski steps down. Um, However, that's the unknown. (laughs) We don't know when he's going to step Mm -hmm. down. Um, Leaders within Cal Labor Fed have uh, suggested maybe it it would be around July. Um, But this is clearly a win for Lorena Gonzalez. Um, She had wanted to become the next Secretary of State. She was actively campaigning for that job when uh, Governor Gavin Newsom appointed her colleague from San Diego, Dr. Shirley Weber, to that role. And uh, she would, she's not going to run against Weber. And so Gonzalez was looking around for her next, you know, spot to land. And it looks like she's found it at the Cal Labor Fed. I think, like you pointed out, it makes sense for her. Um, She is the uh, lawmaker behind AB5, which was essentially trying to create a third tier of worker. No, excuse me. AB5, which she was trying to extend worker rights to gig workers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so she is 
she is beloved by the labor uh, community, and I think this move makes a lot of sense for her. And Guy, just, what would it do to sac- Yeah. Well, and just uh, the musical chairs component of this, that the redistricting currently puts Gonzalez in the same district as Akila Weber, Shirley Weber's daughter, who's uh, <laughs> won an assembly seat. In the legislature, you do have to live in your district. So this would, moving out of the assembly for Lorena Gonzalez would avoid maybe a little, you know, interpersonal clash there. Well, is she termed out too? I she's she no i she's not termed out and i believe she had she was termed out i believe in 24 okay so she's got she, a couple more years if mm-hmm. she chooses i mean guy her leaving early would, would shake things up a bit in the assembly yeah absolutely and i think also if we're talking about the leadership of anthony rendon the speaker of the assembly lorena gonzalez has been a ally of his uh in recent years and it i think as more assembly members reach that 2024 term out period and start to look for their next office, I do think you will start to see a discussion about, okay, what's going to be the future leadership of the legislature? You have Kevin Mullen, another uh, you know top deputy of Anthony Rendon running for Congress, announcing he's going to try to succeed Jackie Spear in Congress. So I do think you're going to start to see that discussion maybe as soon as next year about what's the future leadership uh, in the two houses of the legislature. Absolutely. We're talking with Guy Marzarati and Katie Orr of KQED's politics team. Do you have any thoughts about what we've been discussing? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. Katie, I want to pivot to another topic you've been really digging into, which is abortion rights both in California and across the United States. This Wednesday, the Supreme Court will hear arguments in a huge case Can you tell us what that case is about? Right. This is the case that's coming out of Mississippi that would ban abortions after 15 weeks. And uh, those in the uh, advocacy community say, essentially, if if the justices uphold uh, this, this uphold the ban, uh, it could effectively overturn Roe versus Wade. And that is the law or that is the case that's been in place since the early 70s that guarantees women a right to an abortion uh, before their fetus is considered viable, which is about 24 weeks. So if Roe versus Wade is overturned, um, people I spoke with estimate that, uh, you know, more than half of the states would essentially ban abortions within their state borders. And so places like California, places like New York, places like Chicago would see um, an influx of women who are coming here to get the abortions uh, that they cannot get in their home states. And so California is really looking now at whether or not it is prepared to handle uh, the women that might might be traveling here for the procedure. Well, I mean, that brings up so many issues, including, you know, the resources needed to travel to another state to, to access medical care. But if women can come here from other places, I, I, are these providers ready to offer care? You've been out in the field talking to some of these rural providers, and it's it can be challenging for them as well, even in California. Right. And I think it's important to stress what you just said. Uh, you're right. I've spoken to providers who say most women who cannot get an abortion in their own state will not be able to travel to California for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, child care. Most of the women who receive abortions have children and they weren't who, you know, they can't find someone else to find to watch the kids they already have. They can't get time off work. They can't afford it. And these are largely a lot of the issues that we see in rural parts of California. 
California. Again, we're seeing that divide between metropolitan areas and the coastal cities on the state in the state here and more rural areas where uh, there are no abortion clinics. It's it's estimated there are 40 percent of California counties don't have an abortion clinic in, in them. Um, women have to drive for hundreds of miles to get to a clinic, which hold um, abortions on like a certain day. Providers don't tend to come from the area because, frankly, they don't like living in small communities where they get a lot of pushback for performing abortions. So you have doctors traveling in from like the Bay or LA to perform these services. And it's um, it's challenging for a lot of these women. There's also a cost factor. Uh, in California, there was a bill that would uh, prohibit insurance companies from doing what they call cost sharing, making patients pay for a portion of their abortion. Uh, but that bill did not make it through uh, the legislature last year. They're going to take it up again this year. But so for some women, it could cost, you know, hundreds, if not a thousand dollars to pay for this abortion. And that's money that a lot of these people just don't have. So it's just important to remember that even in California, these abortion access issues still exist. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that the state is also looking at, how to make it easier for women here to receive abortions, as well as women from other states who might travel here. Thank you, Katie. I mean, and and folks who are interested in this can check out the work Katie's been doing at kqed.org. She's got a couple of stories up there and some radio stories. Um, I guess going backwards a little bit, we have a caller, David from San Jose, I think has a comment on Lorena Gonzalez. David, welcome to Forum. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, you know, my concern is more in reading the Mercury News story about that and then hearing you guys on the radio about our position is to ask the question of the Assembly, how will they address as a body the obvious conflict of interest she carries in uh, outsourcing for this job with labor when she's so heavily involved in decisions uh, 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 politically and, and legally for all of California? on union fronts and labor fronts. Uh, there's an obvious conflict of interest. I, I'm going to go work for you, and oh, by the way, I'm in the assembly in this powerful position. How is that going to be addressed? Well, I think, David, I don't think this she would hold the, the seat anymore. I think this would be, the idea would be taking this position with the Labor Federation and leaving her assembly seat. Now, I don't know the potential timing of this, if this would be, you know, leaving after this current term, not running uh, next year, or if it's more immediate, resigning and having a special election. But I think the conversation is about potentially Assemblymember Gonzalez leaving the Assembly to take this job. Right. And um, uh, Guy, I mean, it's not as if any lawmaker comes to the the legislature without a history, right? I mean, from all kinds of industries and backgrounds. And I think in her case, like an unabashed supporter, labor supporter, right? That's where she, you know, was was before she was in Sacramento, was an organizer who was, you know, doing work in San Diego. Um, I don't think, yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that that's what she carries into this job in the legislature is a real support uh, for a labor agenda. And I I would just add that, um, you know, lawmakers after their terms or even before their terms are up, leaving to go work in industries that they have, you know, passed laws on behalf of not unusual. Uh, you know, you can talk about whether or not you think that's right or wrong, but uh, it is it is very common for lawmakers to, you know, enter into these fields. I mean, and they would argue with you, that's where their expertise lies. They still have to make a living. Why wouldn't they do that? Um, but a move like the one she could potentially be making is not uncommon. 
Well, and uh, Katie, I mean, we do we have seen some good government laws passed around, say, direct lobbying, right, that there's a cooling off period. You can't leave the legislature and turn around and automatically uh, lobby your colleagues. But some of that seems to be more symbolic than anything else. Right. I mean, if you're the head of the powerful labor federation or if you go to work, for example, like another former lawmaker did for the oil industry. Um, it's not as if the bully pulpit, you know, you can say things that are not direct lobbying that, that your former colleagues may, might hear. Right, exactly. And, you know, right, what is technically a lobbyist? <laughs> you know, what do you have to actually register for? And what can you kind of, you know, work your connections uh, with on, around those rules? Um, so again, I think it's just something that is is sort of the way of the political world, whether or not people may like it. Yeah, this is a interesting, fascinating one to to watch. Um, Katie, before we move on um, completely from the abortion rights, can you just give us a sense of the timeline on this Supreme Court case, the the Mississippi case that you were referring to? Sure. Yeah, they hear oral arguments on Wednesday. Um, And so then a decision is expected, I believe, in the spring. Okay, so this could be... Could be a while, but not too long before we have have an answer on this. And, um, of course, how that impacts the 2022 elections will be huge as well. You are listening to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim today. All right. Well, just uh, less than 10 minutes left today. But Guy, I want to turn to another topic you've been covering, which is housing. We have seen um, an increasing push in recent years in Sacramento to kind of force local governments to accept more housing construction. Um, and one of these bills passed this year is Senate Bill 9. Tell us about what it does. I, I believe it takes effect in January. Right. So this is honestly, I would say one of the least controversial items that the legislature put for. I mean, the legislature over the last few years has worked through a lot of bills that, start, you know, have taken more control away from local governments in, in an effort to get more housing approved, because oftentimes it is local governments that are the roadblock. In this case, it was about legalizing uh, duplexes, um, you know, wasn't a more one of the more dense uh, construction approval bills. But it's gotten pushback still from, you know, Uh, local groups representing cities and counties. And now there's even an effort making its way towards the 2022 ballot, I believe, in the signature gathering phase to basically block any state control over housing decisions. Um, This has already gotten money from the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, uh, which has backed measures in the past relating from everything from condoms to prescription drugs and has been a big player in Los Angeles when it comes to, you know, blocking, you know, more development, more dense development. Um, so it'll it'll remain to be seen how much they do fund in terms of paid signature gathering. But I do think it's another example of this kind of pushback that we've seen on the local level to both the governor and the Democratic majority in the legislature, which has really pursued this idea of having the state take more control in, in local housing decisions to make up for the fact that so much of the, the kind of deficit we're in in terms of constructing new units. So we're seeing cities, you know, push back. Um, Los Altos Hills passed a piece of legislation that, that essentially aimed at circumventing these laws. I mean, what's your sense or do we know yet whether there will be, you know, that these will be upheld, that there'll be a way to kind of change local law to get around these mandates? Well, I think it remains to be seen the kind of the loopholes that locals can use. But I do think the state is putting more teeth into enforcement. We heard a couple of weeks ago, the attorney general come out and say that he's creating a new task force within his office, basically to supplement the legal arm of 
you know, the housing department under the governor, that they might not have enough resources to pursue litigation against cities that aren't following housing law. So basically, the attorney general says he's setting aside a half dozen or so, you know, lawyers within his office to go after and file these lawsuits uh, against cities that, you know, aren't following recent housing accountability laws. So what is this, uh, Katie, I want to bring you in back in. I mean, You've been watching a lot of these bills pass. And and quite frankly, the legislature has gotten more aggressive in recent years. You know, things like SB9, even if it's not that controversial, would have been, I think, a decade ago. And I'll just say politically, the tenor is completely changed. You can't interview anyone running for local office who doesn't. When you ask them about housing, the first thing they say is, well, we need we definitely need more housing. Obviously, then Then they say, but not here. Right. But (laughs) but certainly you can't just a, a, you know, blatant anti-housing message, uh, you know, resonates less and less, especially here in the Bay Area. I mean, Katie, what does this tell you just about the housing battles in California? Are we reaching a new... I don't know. I mean, I think I think we are. And I think to your point that the legislature has gotten more aggressive. I mean, I think we are going to see as more cities try and put these kind of rules into, as you said, you know, get around SB9. um, You're going to see the legislature striking back. And really, I feel like not even being um, shy about it, you know, I mean, really calling it out for what a lot of people see as rich places trying to maintain their exclusivity. You know, they want a certain kind of family or, you know, people to live in that area and they're doing what they can to keep it that way. I mean, I'm sure the cities would have another take on it, but that's what advocates of more housing of end of SB9 are going to tell you. And I would uh, I would not be surprised to see legislators being very uh, open about that and blatant about that on the, the floors of the Assembly and, and the Senate. I think this is not something that they're going to sit back and watch. I mean, of course, we've always seen battles between the state and local governments here in California, but also to your point, housing is the, you know, aside from perhaps COVID, housing is one of the top issues in California, housing and homelessness. And I think there's going to be much less patience for cities uh, who try and get around these rules now because everybody is so aware of um, how short California is on needed housing. Absolutely. Guy. Just a couple of minutes left. But I mean, Katie brought up homelessness. That is obviously the sort of most visible example of our failure on housing in California. There's a lot of talk from Los Angeles up to Sacramento at the local level about creating encampment bans, you know, a right to housing, saying that you basically that people would have to take housing in some of these places if they were offered it. Do you anticipate this is going to become kind of a statewide debate in 22? Is this one of those issues? Yeah, I think so. And you've heard it from folks like Daryl Steinberg, close to the uh, governor who has worked on homelessness issues. And I do think homelessness has the ability to manifest as a most direct political threat on the local level. We've seen in Los Angeles, for example, a city council member facing a recall because of of residents who felt like he wasn't doing enough to get rid of tent encampments uh, in his district. So I do think local officials certainly feel the pressure and we'll see how quickly that moves up the, the political chain. Right. And, you know, even though we just got through that recall, Newsom is up for election in 22. And you do wonder if he wins, especially easily, what kind of sort of mandate that would give him on some of these more controversial issues around housing and homelessness. Right. I mean, he didn't he sue Huntington Beach the yes. week he took yeah. office. So I don't think, he, <laughs> yeah, he, he wasn't shy in his first term. And I don't, and certainly to your point, I don't think he will be if he wins another term. 
All right. Well, that is going to be uh, do it for our Monday morning politics roundtable. We had Katie Orr here, politics and government reporter for KQED in Sacramento. Katie, thanks so much for uh for dropping in today. Yeah, thank you. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Guy Marzarati is reporter and producer for our California Politics and Government Desk. Always big thanks to you, Guy. Thanks for having me. We were also joined earlier by Meg Terrell. She's senior health and science reporter for CNBC. And um, that is going to do it for today. I This is Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. Mina Kim will be back tomorrow. Thanks so much for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.